And if you would please get out your copies of God's Word as we look at Luke chapter 17 once more. Luke chapter 17 will be in verses 1 through 10 again this morning. I remember we are in part two of looking at this passage and its teachings on forgiveness. We do hope that this has been uh, helpful to you. And I hope that as we look into this second part, that this will be a marvelous encouragement for you uh, as we work through this most necessary process of forgiveness. So please join me as we listen to Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, but we have only done what was our duty. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us go to our Father once more and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Lord God, we have before us a wonderful passage, a passage of great encouragement. And I pray that we would see it as such and that you would transform our hearts to see what you have done for us in enabling us to forgive. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, if you weren't here, we looked at what it means to rebuke and to forgive. And Jesus sure wasn't pulling any punches, was he, when he was talking about those things? When we found that when we are hurt, our call is to go to the person that has hurt us and to call them on their sin. This is not an opportunity to be going on a sin hunt every moment or try to nitpick every single person's flaws. But it's when we have been hurt and we feel that we don't want to just sit on that, lest it become a bitterness in us. But instead, that we are to go and reason frankly with our neighbor, as Leviticus 17 taught us, and to root out this sin and bring it into the open that we might not hold a grudge. And that even if this person sees their sin or not, that we are called to have this attitude of forgiveness. We saw that forgiveness wasn't just a scowling face and saying the words, I forgive you. But that forgiveness meant that we were not to bring up this offense to the other person, not to bring this up to other people, nor even to bring it up in our own hearts, but to really and truly let go, to release this person from our debt. This is something that's really hard to do, but something that Christ calls us to do. 
as a necessary thing. And this is exceptionally difficult to do at once. But as Jesus, as we saw there in verse 4, even if someone is to do this seven times in a day that we are called to forgive. This tells us that there is no room for resentment in the Christian heart. That there is no place for bitterness in a life transformed by Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that if you feel hurt over what's happened, that that's bitterness. It's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that when we take that hurt and we use this as an occasion to fuel our own anger and bitterness towards that person, that's what we're called to leave behind. That is what we are called to let go of. But how? It seems when we talk about these things in in the Christian life that so often that we tend to think that Jesus's words are applying to small stuff. This is what we tell our children when someone pushes them off the slide or when someone doesn't share their toys. But can it really apply to something when I have been really hurt? I mean really hurt, like abused, or have found my partner to be unfaithful to me in my marriage. Does this really apply there? And I would say it has to. If Jesus' words can't be applied to even the darkest of situations, even the deepest hurts of our souls, then Jesus' words can't be applied to the light stuff either. But the question still remains as to how does this work? How do we forgive a hurt that is profound or one that we may have been carrying for decades? How is this possible? Well, we're going to look at just that today. This is what we're going to see in verses 5 and 6 of how we can forgive even the deepest of hurts. You see the outline that we have last week, or this week, you'll see it's the same as last week. But we're going to be looking at just point two today as I continue to look and see more and more in this passage. We're going to look at this second point which is constant forgiveness, which is the attitude that we're supposed to have, that this requires faith in Christ. Each of those words being important. Constant forgiveness requires faith in Christ. Now here, when we see in verse 5, the apostles are reacting to what Jesus has just told them, that they are called to forgive offenses even if they have been offended multiple times in the day. And they are seeing what Jesus is asking them to do. Notice how Luke uses kind of a rare term for them, that he calls them the apostles. Instead of usually, it's the disciples that is referred to here. And one of the commentators that I read speculates that perhaps what Luke is doing is he is showing us even the men that Christ has handpicked to be his inner circle. Even the men that Jesus has chosen that would go on, most of them, to write books of the New Testament, who all but one of them would die for their faith in Christ. Even these people are struggling with the idea of what Jesus is asking them to do. So I think that this is an appropriate understanding when we walk away from this passage, a little wobbly need is what Jesus is calling us to, that the apostles share in this hesitation. And here, the apostles respond and they say, Lord, increase our faith. 
How are we supposed to forgive this thing? We don't have the faith to do it right now, so you please increase it. And at one level, this is a profoundly insightful request for the apostles. Uh, They've placed their finger on what is necessary for forgiveness. One of the commentators that I read had pointed out that they don't ask for more patience or more love or more power, more fortitude. What they ask is for faith because that's the essence of forgiveness, isn't it? You have to trust God deeply to forgive somebody, especially in our culture. Because when you forgive somebody, you are letting go of a tremendous amount of power and leverage, aren't you? When, you, when someone has hurt you, and you know, and they know that you know that you've been hurt, there is a certain leverage that you have over that person to saying, you are in my debt. And oftentimes in the world we can say, it's like, well, you're not allowed to strike first. But if you've been struck, then you can strike back as hard as you possibly can and make them regret the day that they ever crossed you. There's a certain that comes with something like that. But Jesus is asking us to let that go. We don't hold on to this supposed advantage. And it's not an advantage. It's just a bitterness that corrodes yourself. But anyway, we're letting go of this thing. This hole that we have over somebody else and letting it pass us by. That's something that we're having to trust that God has a better thing for us than what the world can offer to us. And this does require great strength, great faith in God. And we might think, depending on the level of hurt, we might say, it's like, well, I need more faith than that. You don't understand how much I've been hurt. I just don't have the trust to do this. I need more of it in order to be able to reach out to this person. It's just not possible for me to forgive somebody with the level of trust that I have right now. And that's the sense of what the apostles are getting at. But Jesus does something different, as he usually does. Jesus is turning the tables on us and is changing the category of what we're supposed to be looking at. So listen very closely here because he's saying the unexpected and he continues. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. There's a lot going on in this text here. Some things we need to unpack for us to understand this image of what Jesus is getting across here to us. Now, when Jesus is talking about the faith of a mustard seed, I think we're all familiar that the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds that was considered at the time. This was the, a, a, a proverbial thing of how tiny of a faith that you would require. But what is Jesus talking about when he mentions a mulberry bush? Why of all trees or bushes is Jesus picking out that one? Well, at this time, the mulberry tree was considered to be a legendary bush in that it had a root system that could go down and grow and remain. It was thought at the time to remain for 600 years. That's something that's deeply planted, isn't it? Can you imagine trying to uproot a tree in your yard that has been there and growing 70 years before Columbus started out over the water? You would think that's going to be quite a task to uproot something like that. It's one thing to cut it down, but it's another thing to actually pull it up and get it out of the ground. 
We have a hard enough time trying to uproot some shrubs that have been there for 10 years, haven't we? If we have, some of you may remember we had some shrubs out here in the parking lot, and we were trying to uproot one of those things. And the loppers and chainsaws and shovels were not enough to get the thing out. Eventually, we had to chain the thing to Eddie's truck and finally popped it out. That's why the other one's still there. So it earned its spot. But now you can imagine, if we have that big of a difficulty trying to uproot something that's been there for maybe 20 years, but trying to uproot something that's been there for 600 years and then say that we're only going to do it with a word. That all we have to do is just speak to this bush and it will leap out of the ground itself and then be planted in the sea and be rooted there. A place that's constantly changing and moving around. We would say that this is obviously impossible, but yet Jesus says that this is possible with even the smallest amount of faith. Now, what's Jesus really getting at here? Is Jesus telling us, as one commentator humorously put it, is Jesus telling us to get in trouble with the EPA and sending trees flying around and making our landscaping business a reality? No, of course, it's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about is actually much harder. For those that have experienced a real hurt, or for those that have had a bitterness that's sat in their soul for a while, it can feel like a 600-year-old mulberry tree, doesn't it? That this has become so much a part of your life, it's almost a part of an identity. And that to lose a bitterness or to give up a grudge that you've been holding against someone feels like giving up a part of yourself. And it seems impossible that something that has been in your chest for 5, 10, 15, even 50 years, that something like that could just be uprooted. It would almost seem easier to just tackle that tree, wouldn't it? But Jesus is saying that faith can accomplish that. Listen to what one commentator put it this way. Listen carefully. This is really good. Genuine faith can accomplish what experience, reason, and probability would deny if it is exercised within God's will. In other words, no matter what your experience in your life has been, no matter what the odds are that you can forgive this person or what it is that um, we think might be the case, the logic of whether or not they would ever turn around, all of that goes away when we introduce faith in Christ into the equation. That changes everything. Never tell me the odds when it comes to Jesus. Those things don't matter. And we can respond, you don't know what this person has been like or what I'm like. You don't know how unlikely it is to restore this relationship. I've given this a try already. If the odds of something like that happening are close to zero, God doesn't care. God can do a lot with a little bit of faith. Now, what does that imply? This is the point I really want us to get. So if you've tuned out, it's okay. Tune back in. Get here. What this implies is that the power to forgive is not in faith itself. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in Christ. It's where is your faith finding its foundation? What is the object of your faith that makes the difference in forgiveness? The power that faith has comes from what that faith is based on. If you're basing your 
faith on the common good of humanity, you will be disappointed. If you put your faith in yourself, you will be disappointed. You have limits. Odds have rule over you. Probability governs you. But faith in Christ is something completely differently. Got another commentator put it this way. Faith's presence is more crucial than its quantity. Jesus is essentially saying that God can do a lot with a little trust. Did you hear that? Faith's presence is more crucial than its quantity. We don't need more faith in and of itself. We need a greater view of the divine object of our faith. I remember when we moved to Alabama, my family and I went on a trip to the statue of Vulcans in the center of Birmingham. If you haven't been there, you can ride an elevator up to the top of the statue, and they have a little balcony out around the statue. You can go out and see these vast views of Birmingham. I remember I had just recently gotten into photography at the time. I had a new camera and was really looking forward to getting up there and seeing the the sights of the city. Well, terrifyingly for me, when I got off the elevator and I saw the metal balcony that was beneath me, it had drain holes in it so the water could get through. And the holes were big enough so where I could see the several stories down to the hard pavement beneath me. And my back was against the wall as hard as it could as I was trying to slowly work my way around the statue to maybe get a picture from a safe distance and walk away. Now, a funny thing happened to me while I was up there. And that the longer that I was up there and the more experience I had with that metal balcony, the more trust I had in it. But here's the difference. Didn't, is my faith what kept me up, or was it the balcony that kept me up? It's the balcony. It wasn't my trust in the structure, it was the structure itself. And when I had little faith, it held me up. And when I had large faith, it held me up. Because it was the structure. It was the metal platform that wasn't going to give, no matter how little trust I had in it. And it's the same thing with God. We can have very little trust in God, but God is still God. God is still powerful. God is still not governed by odds or experience or probability. God can do a lot with a little and can hold you up, not on the strength of your faith, but on his strength. Now, the more faith you have, the more trust that you have, especially one that's gained with more experience with him, the more comfortable you will be going out onto those balconies. But it doesn't change what you can do because the power is not in you. The power is in God. So the disciples are asking, can you gin up enough faith for us to forgive someone? But that was the wrong question. The real question is, is God powerful enough to work in your heart to forgive whoever it is that comes to mind at this moment? And the answer to that is yes, because he is faithful even when you are faithless. When Peter walks out onto the water, it's Christ that saves him, not his faith. It's Christ that held him up on the waves not his own belief. God can absolutely work this in your life. 
but then maybe you might be honest with me. As I was honest looking at this text, and you might be asking, if God's so powerful, then why isn't he changing me? Why am I not feeling that? If the power's not in me, and I grant you it's not, why do I still feel bitter? Why do I still have this grudge in me over these hurts? Well, it might be that you haven't spent enough time with him yet. And growing more in reading of the word and being in prayer and taking of this Lord's Supper, that this will grow you more and more to see who he is and to see the power that is available to you. It might take time. It might be that you need to know that God is always with you and that God is with you even in the darkest places. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Psalm 139. And hear the comfort in this passage. Psalm 139, starting in verse 7, and seeing that God is with you in every part of your life. Look what the psalmist says, Psalm 139. Starting in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, it is death, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me is night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God has been with you from the beginning. God has been with you since before the beginning and is with you even now to shepherd you through this pain that you're going through. Or perhaps maybe you need to hear that God has more than an intellectual knowledge of you or an intellectual knowledge of the pain that you've endured because Christ has felt those things experientially. When the Son came to this world in the person of Christ, he took on a human nature. And what that means is that he has experienced in his human nature everything that you are experiencing. He was rejected by 12 people that he poured his whole life into. And at the moment when it was time to go to the cross in his deepest, darkest moment, they all abandoned him. One of them was the agent to make that happen. Jesus understands betrayal. Early on in Jesus' ministry, when he was talking about being the savior of the world, his family was outside saying, he's gone crazy. His family left him behind. His family rejected him. His friends rejected him. He was being mocked as he was dying for the sin of mocking the Lord of glory. Jesus understands what it means to be hurt. 
Jesus understands what pain is. But the spirit of Christ that was able to cry out, Father, forgive them as they were driving the nails into his hands, that same spirit is alive in you today if you are a Christian. Look what it says in Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's where the power to forgive comes from. And if you've been spending your time trying to find reasons as to why you should forgive this person or trying to spend time seeking other things to numb the pain, perhaps the time is to look to Christ and say, I can't do this. This is you. You've got to do this. And change this in me. But even if after all of that, maybe you say, no, I still can't forgive then might I very soberly, but lovingly, ask you if you have been forgiven yourself? Have you experienced what Christ offers to you? You, dear sinner, need to be forgiven. I need to be forgiven. Infinitely more than anybody could ever sin against me. I've done way worse to Jesus than anyone's ever done to me. Because Jesus had to endure the wrath of God that was for me. That wrath had my name on it. And Christ endured all of that for me. I've been forgiven of an enormous debt. How much more should I be able to forgive someone else's debt to me, even if it is enormous? And maybe if you've not experienced that forgiveness in your own heart, you can't pass it on to other people. And if that's where perhaps you stand today, then I would beg you and plead with you to throw yourself at the mercy of Christ, who will forgive. As we sang earlier in this song, Jesus ready stands to save you. Don't wait, try to clean yourself up. It's a paraphrase of what that Verse was saying, if you wait until you're ready, you will never come. So come, bring your bitterness, bring your unforgiving heart and take it to Jesus and say, change it. Only you can. It's not my level of trust that does it. It's not my level of anything that does it. It's you that changes it and bring it to him. And then you'll be able to forgive Because that's what Jesus has promised. That you will be able to forgive even as you have been forgiven. I invite you to think about that even as we come to this table. Because that's what this table represents. It's forgiveness. Not just in the vertical. Not just between God and myself. But between myself and everybody else. When we come to this table, this is a table of forgiveness and unity. So if we have bitterness in our hearts, if we have daggers in our eyes for other members of the family of God, we can't come to this table. If we say, I want Jesus, but I hate his family, I want nothing to do with that, then you don't want anything to do with Jesus. Jesus loves his family a lot. 
He spilled his blood for his family. And that's what this represents to us. So I pray that as you come to this table, that if there is unforgiveness in your heart, you would give that to Jesus. You would let this go as you're reminded that you, as a rebel, have been invited to come to this royal table that the king himself has made for us. And you say, it's like, Mark, I want to, but I'm imperfect. I've sinned a lot this week. I've even had struggling with forgiveness with people. I want to, working with it. Jesus and I are working on it. Can I come to the table? Yes. Jesus invites you to come. Because this is not only forgiveness, this is faith too. This is a cup of blessing, Paul calls it. That this is going to build up our faith. If you need to get a greater vision of Christ, you need to feel that forgiveness that Christ has offered to you, come and take of it. This physical reminder of a spiritual reality. And let's feast together. So what's our takeaway from today? Our takeaway is that forgiveness is really, really hard. And you can't do it. But Christ can. Even if you have the smallest of faith in the greatest of powers, that greatest of powers can work in you. And I invite you for him to work in you today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this forgiveness that you have so freely offered to us. We can't earn it. There is no amount of good works. There is no amount of reform. There is no amount of worship or anything that we could do. No amount of Bible reading. No amount of prayer. No amount of forgiveness that could make us worthy of your gospel. But you come and you offer us forgiveness. So I pray that we would live in that reality, that we would rest in the forgiveness that you offer to us this day. And that we would then turn and offer it to others. Oh, Jesus, I ask that if there are any who are here who need this forgiveness from you, but have not surrendered their life to you, I pray that you would not let them get another moment's sleep until they do. I ask as we come to this table that we would be reminded in a new way how much we owe to you and what a privilege it is to be at this table. And may we remember and proclaim the forgiveness of sins that you offer to us this day. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.